How do the world's top financial services firms repel sophisticated hackers and nation-state actors? Join Looking Glass product manager Dan Martin and me, Security Ledger Editor-in-Chief Paul Roberts, for an introduction to Scout Threat. It's a threat management platform that helps security analysts streamline their work and extract the maximum value from threat intelligence. You can register now by going to securityledger.com slash adversary. Hello, and welcome to the Security Ledger Podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, the Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. A Christmas Carol, It's a Wonderful Life, Miracle on 34th Street. Those are the films that typically come to mind when you think about holiday movies. But 30 years ago, moviegoers were treated to a special new kind of holiday story. I was always kind of partial to Roy Rogers, actually. I really like those sequined shirts. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Die Hard, the 1988 blockbuster, made Bruce Willis's career and cemented Alan Rickman's sneering erudite Hans Gruber in the pantheon of Hollywood villains. But behind the performances of Willis, Rickman, and Reginald Val Johnson, the beat cop and everyman Sergeant Al Powell, there's a critical and often overlooked character on the screen in Die Hard, Nakatomi Plaza, the Los Angeles high-rise where Willis's battle against Rickman's murderous band of criminals plays out particular, Nakatomi Plaza's state-of-the-art building automation software plays a huge role in the film. It runs everything from the elevators and phones to the doors, and it's one of the first victims of the movie falling to the nimble hands of Theo, the gang's resident hacker. Of course, that was 30 years ago, so surely building automation systems in use today are much more robust and secure than those deployed in the 1980s, right? Well, don't be so sure, says our guest this week. Ong Sui is the CEO of the cybersecurity startup Red Balloon, and he's an expert on the security of embedded devices and building automation systems. While the software running modern office buildings and high-rises probably wasn't created in the days of the mainframes, it might not be that much younger than the software that Theo hacks so easily in Die Hard, and it almost certainly isn't much more secure. In this podcast, Ong and I talk about why building automation system software came to be so insecure. We talk about why we haven't seen more attacks on building automation systems and what the best approach is to securing them. Uh, my name is Ong Sui. I am the chief scientist and founder of Red Balloon Security. Ong, welcome to Security Ledger Podcast. Thanks for having me. We're here today to talk about a um, topic that is not often discussed, which is the security of building automation systems. Maybe to start, what are we talking about when we use the term building automation and what types of hardware and software make up these systems? Yeah, that's a really great question. So, you know, let's do an exercise for the listeners, right? So, you know, close your eyes and in front of you, I want you to imagine a building controller. Right now, ask yourself this question. What does it look like? How big is it? You know, what color is it? Who makes it? And, and what does it do? Most people have never seen any one of these things. Uh, and I certainly didn't really look. I had no idea what these were or, or who made them before I started this project uh, working on building control system security with DHS. So here's the secret. You know, when we talk about building automation, I think a lot of people think about 
the, the new home automation, smart home doodads that are coming out, you know, your Philips mm-hmm. light bulbs and your, your Alexas and your, your Nest, uh, you know, things. And uh, that's certainly an aspect of it. You know, that's home automation. But um, the secret is building control systems uh, have existed for at least 20 years. There's one in every building. If you work inside an office building, there is a building controller in that building. And it's been there before, you know, the, the whole concept of smart home and home automation existed. Yeah, these are, you know, great little boxes that control a lot of the different aspects of, uh, you know, your modern building. So this includes environmental controls. This includes access control. Uh, this will include fire suppression systems uh, and, uh, you know, monitoring systems of all kind. You know, we t- like to think that, you know, CCTV security system, you know, we think that it's, you know, closed circuit TV, but it's really not anymore. It's all IP, IP cameras handling the security system. Uh, and then, you know, in more special buildings like a uh, biological research facility or a lab environment or a pharmaceutical production plant, you know, you're talking about uh, environmental controls that create biocontainment. And these are usually done just by spinning a fan at, you know, to, different fans at differentials to create a pressure differential. So you can, you know, have, you know, negative pressure on one side and positive pressure on the other side. Right. And that's, you know, typically how biocontainment uh, is done. And then, you know, in other types of buildings, you have um, like a data center, you know, you have uh, fire suppression systems that dispense you have something like a halon gas, right? So, you know, that control system actually has the power to uh, flood a room with, with gas that will literally kill you if you're in that room. So, uh, yeah, your, your building control system uh, does a whole lot of, of these things. And we typically don't think about it because um, for the most part, they tend to just work. But there is a computer running firmware that's probably 15 years old. <laughs> that has all of the vulnerabilities of, I would say, the typical building controller that I've looked at, if you look inside the firmware, uh, has far less in terms of, a, you know, a cybersecurity posture than your typical unpatched XP laptop, mm-hmm. right? Uh, mm-hmm. And that's, I think, good. In the work that we've done with DHS, uh, you know, it's, it's twofold. One, there's an effort to uh, create an automated system that goes out analyzes the firmware of, you know, not only building control systems, but industrial controllers, uh, telecommunication endpoints, and all of these mystery embedded devices, unpack the firmware, look inside and find vulnerabilities that uh, are inside, right? So, you know, that's one effort. And the other effort is, uh, you know, specifically, you know, take the the technology that Repaloon has developed and use that to secure the building control system and lab control system for, this uh, research facility that DHS runs. So, yeah, the, the results are, are fascinating. You know, I can't go into too much detail about the specifics of the, the Plum Island engagement because, you know, obviously that is, you know, a BSL three plus biological research facility run by the government. But I can talk about about this stuff in general. Um, yeah, and the state of you know cybersecurity for your typical building control system, not great. They're they're. Uh, should be a lot of improvement to bring this up to parity with even, you know, like Windows 7 laptop sort of level. And um, and we've done that. We've done that with the Symbio technology that Redboom has built. And we were able to demonstrate that, yes, there are a number of vulnerabilities that are very serious inside these controllers. And two, we can take something like the Symbio technology, put it into the firmware of these devices and actually secure it against cyber attack. 
so I guess that's the good news and bad news, right? Both of these things are possible, or both of these things are true. You know, the security of building control systems, not great. And the fact that the technology exists to secure them to make them better also does exist. So that's, that's good news. A few minutes ago, you asked the uh, listeners to close their eyes and imagine something. Um, is it okay for them to open their eyes now? No, this is, uh, we're still on this engine. You know, until you tell them to, they're just going to sit there with their eyes shut. Yeah. <laughs> that Plum Island facility, listeners may have heard of that recently because there was a demonstration there of a um, attack on the electrical grid and, and then efforts to restore that um, uh, or, or recover from a, a devastating attack on the electrical grid, including kind of manually restarting the grid um, on that small scale. So I, that's where DHS does um, a lot of this testing around critical infrastructures. Is that right? Uh, that is right. And I was uh, actually in one of the, the shipping containers <laughs> uh, during that exercise. So Red Balloon is also participating, uh, you know, in, in that program with DARPA. So that, that's the DARPA SIDAR project. Um, and, uh, you know, very, a lot of similarities there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that program is designed to device technologies that allow us to come back from a successful cyber attack against our power utility uh, infrastructure. So, you know, we saw what happened in, in the Ukraine. We took a look at the things that control our power grid and we said, huh, a lot of this stuff, we, the U.S. uses a lot of the similar things that the rest of the world uses. And uh, we realized that, yes, just like, you know, building control systems and industrial controllers, uh, the controllers that control our power infrastructure is also vulnerable to cyber attack. This Plum Island facility, it, it's basically like Resident Evil out there, right? I mean... No, it isn't. I, I've been <laughs> on the island. It is a beautiful island. Uh, you know, it's got some really cool historical fort things from uh, the Spanish-American War. You know, it, it's, it's a gorgeous place. Uh, and, um, but yeah, you know, so you know, Plum Island is a facility where, yeah, like DARPA brought up, you know, this, uh, you know, like, I think, 18 different substations to, to do this test of a you know, dry run of the technologies that people have produced to, you know, come back, you know, like restart the, the, the grid, you know, after a cyber attack. What were your thoughts on that particular exercise? And did, did, I guess, what role did Red Balloon play, if you can talk about it? And, and did you walk away from that feeling like we're in good shape or like, man, I hope this doesn't happen on a large scale? Well, we're not there yet, right? So clearly, you know, if this happened today, we're going to be scrambling and it's going to be a major disaster for, for, the, for us as a country. But we are making a whole lot of progress. Uh, we, we have more understanding about, you know, how to start the power grid and how to take it down, you know, like, uh, you know, than mm -hmm. we did two years ago. Mm -hmm. So we're making progress. I didn't know anything about power and, and where electrons come from, you know, before I started, you know, working on, on this project with DARPA. But uh, it, it turns out, you know, it's it takes electricity to start an electrical generator, mm. right? You know, that mm -hmm. was one of my, here's how power works 101 things that blew my mind, right? So if you turn off your, your power plant, right, you're going to need a massive diesel, you know, like truck size generator to start your power plant. And then if you don't do it in the right order, right, things will catch on fire and blow up and not work. So mm -hmm. yeah, coming up with the uh, the black kickstart plan uh, is a lot more complicated than you know what most people think. You know, there's no key that you just turn yeah. that turns on a power plant. And when you consider the network of power plants all over 
you know, the country, right, that becomes a, a pretty difficult thing to do. So I know in Ukraine, which is, you know, the one example we have of an actual in the wild attack on, on an electric grid, you know, at the end of the day, it really fell to engineers to kind of, you know, get in their car and drive out to substations and, and literally flip switches and, and reboot systems and very manually kind of get that part of the grid back online. Uh, that was disabled by the black energy malware. Is that also part of the plan here in the United States? And in some ways is dealing with a cyber attack on the grid about re-educating engineers about how to manually operate equipment or even putting in kind of analog controls um, as, as fail-safes. This, uh, this ARPA program is considering every one of the, uh, the things that you said and more, right? So the idea of the CIDAR program is Let's just create whatever we have to to allow a technician who is not an expert in cybersecurity or maybe don't know anything about cybersecurity to figure out how to reliably restart the power infrastructure. So, you know, there are performers looking at it from the perspective of, you know, we, we maybe we'll just have a button, right, that the, the engineer hits and it's going to be you don't have to know anything about cybersecurity or, or how computers work. You just have to know that. In this situation, here is how you, you know, reboot and guarantee that it comes back clean, right? Um, Red Balloon's perspective, and this is our perspective on pretty much every one of the engagements that we're working on, is instead of doing that, let's put endpoint security into the firmware of these vulnerable devices so that we're not coming up with a plan of, you know, how to recover from a successful attack. We are trying to pre prevent the attack from happening or succeeding in the first place, right? So, you know, and I think there's a good comp comparison for general purpose security. So, you know, let's go back in time, think like 2005, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, if I said, okay, let, here's a strategy for securing your laptop. We're not, we're gonna allow the, uh, the hacker to come into your laptop, right? And then once your laptop starts malfunctioning, I'm gonna show you a secret combination of keys to reboot your laptop to come back clean, right? And we're just gonna do this over and over again. Right, that's option A, or option B is let's put antivirus in on, in this laptop and find the the malware and the you know the rootkits and and whatnot and remove them. Mm -hmm. Right, so you know I personally and and the Red Balloon's perspective is option B is a lot more attractive and I think that's the more tenable you know way to go forward. But you know that technology is is obviously just coming off the ground and we're showing that it's it's feasible. But you know the practical uh, you know person who has to be in charge of you know, what happens tomorrow if this happens in the United States is uh, is looking at option A of, you know, what kind of mechanisms can we create that allows a non-cybersecurity expert to go into a substation, right, remove the cyber threat, diagnose the cyber threat, remove it, and then just bring the power back, right, right, right. hopefully without the implant still in there. So, yeah, this is, uh, you know, SIDARS, can, uh, the program itself is considering, I think, both options. And I think that's definitely the right thing to do. When we're talking about building automation uh, software, are these the sort of usual suspects, you know, the Siemens and Honeywells of the world who produce this? Or is it, um, you know, smaller, more specialized vendors? Like who is in this space? And I guess what is the state of the art? Yeah. So, you know, Siemens, uh, JCI, uh, Honeywell, you know, these are all the the major players in the market, you know, so there are the, uh, the controllers, right. And then there are the actual sensors and actuators that 
you know, turn the valves, open the, the doors and, and stuff like that. And there are a whole lot of providers, vendors out there that, you know, integrate into these uh, control panels. And uh, the thing that I, I've learned is, you know, every building is different. So there's no cookie cutter, you know, here is a building control system that like uh, that there's no quote unquote standard building control system. And it's because, uh, you know, every, every office building is different. The engineer that designs this stuff, you know, they source parts from all over the world and um, depending on who is cheaper that month when the building plans were drafted or the designs were, were, you know, like drafted, that's what ends up being in that building for a decade plus, right? So the typical lifespan of, of these control systems is usually the life, lifespan of, you know, like we're talking 15 years, right? So, you know, every, every instance, uh, every installation we go into, we see some, you know, we see the typical suspects for the controllers, but the sensors are you know, sort of all over the place. I know often in the industrial control and SCADA space, um, the software is part of the problem, but also the the protocols that are used, you know, Modbus and and so on, often are themselves quite insecure and, and vulnerable to tampering. I'm guessing in the in building automation space, we're generally talking about some of these less secure ICS protocols. Yeah, absolutely. The, pro- the communication protocols that you see is, you know, it's very typical of uh, industrial control you know, problems. Uh, so, you know, you have things like, you know, BACnet, P2, right? So these are, you know, protocols I did not know about until I started working on this project. These were designed back in the day uh, in order to communicate, have a sensor communicate to the controller over a pair of physical wires that are not connected to any IT network, you know, no ethernet connection, right? This was a, it was simple to reason about because this was an air gap network because the internet literally didn't exist around the building, you know, when this was designed. What happened after that was um, somebody said, hmm, you know, what if we made a little transceiver bridge that allowed us to send packets from the ethernet network onto the the building control system, right? And all of a sudden you took the, uh, the security design of something that was designed to be air gapped and without internet, right? And you connected it to, you give it the connectivity of the internet. Yeah, this is a very typical problem where all of a sudden we have to consider like what happens when somebody can connect from around the world into this installation and then speak these obviously very insecure unencrypted protocols uh, directly onto you know the controllers and actuators. Yeah, you see that in building control, you see that in industrial control. So as the CEO of a company that does red teaming and penetration testing, those types of things, um, how do you look at building automation networks? And uh, from the attacker standpoint, where are the biggest vulnerabilities and the biggest risks? Uh, Every time I look at an embedded device, uh, my first uh, instinct is to let's go look inside the firmware. Okay, so, you know, we don't like to treat embedded devices as black boxes because they're not, you know, they're what's inside that box is a general purpose uh, processor running some kind of, uh, well, sometimes, you know, bare metal code, but maybe sometimes something that resembles an operating system that was designed circa, you know, 1995, right? Uh, And then implemented in 2005 again. So we always like to open the box, look in the firmware, figure out what is the code that's actually running on that. And this is a really fun part. You know, a lot of times we get to pretend like we're hackers from, you know, like 1995, but with the knowledge of uh, offensive capabilities from 2018, you know, so that makes us almost, uh, you know, godlike in our powers, right? It's, it's not even fair uh, a lot of times. <laughs> it's like if somebody, you know, like a future hacker traveled back in time from like 2030, right? And showed us all of the yeah. crazy ways you can own computers today, uh, you know, it, it, would, it would be not fair. So we're looking, 
in a way, traveling back in time, looking at the firmware of these things that were made, yeah, like 2005, right? And, um, and then, yeah, finding all sorts of ways. That's why in Terminator, they had to come through the time portal naked. Otherwise, it just wouldn't have been an interesting movie. <laughs> well, you know. I, they would have brought their weapons back, and it just would have been, it would have been a very I, short I film. I feel like that's the, the hacker from the future should also do that, right? And the first thing that, that person would do is, I require a keyboard, you know, like now. Um, <laughs> optical interface. I know in the past there, there have been um, researchers. I know Deviant Olam did some really interesting stuff with elevator systems and door badge systems and so on. But are there particular systems that are most susceptible to attack? You know, if you were to look out there on Shodan, for example, or or um, you know, walk up to your average um, office building or office park, systems that really are kind of out there and exposed and potentially dangerous? Yeah, you know, I was just about to mention that uh, every single one of these are vulnerable. You know, so I, there isn't really one controller that, you know, has all of the security features built in. You know, of course, we are here to help the manufacturers of, uh, you know, these, control, uh, these controllers to put in modern security capabilities. But, you know, today you, you don't see a lot of security mechanisms or technology in these controllers. So I would say, you know, pretty much uh, every controller out there is needs a, a whole lot of improvement. And yeah, if you look on Shodan, you, you're going to see, you know, a lot of these things connected right to the internet. Um, and that's, yeah. you know, obviously not great. What you're saying sort of rings bells with me or seems very similar to other conversations that I've had around industrial control system security and internet of things security, which is we have this tension between um, um, often like physical or mechanical devices that have very long lifespans using software that has a very different kind of time horizon, right? So we think of like three and four year refresh cycles on standard enterprise IT assets. And, and we also kind of expect that that software and hardware is going to be actively managed, you know, patched every week or so and and monitored constantly and so on. And 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 just like those two things are just in tension with each other. So you have this hardware that's the expectation is really that it's going to be very passively managed and the software that actually needs to be very actively managed. So how do you square that how do you square that circle, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, some some things have to change. You know, and, and you you bring up a really good point where you know, there is uh, this, you know, I think it's a false trade-off, uh, but, you know, a trade-off people see is, you know, between having a air gap system that, because air gap is secure, right, and having a system that is constantly connected to some kind of a network that allows it to be centrally monitored for failures, defects, uh, cyber attacks, and, and things like that. So do you disconnect it and just go that way? Or do you connect it all the time? Which one gets you the better sort of safety and, and reliability? So I think that the industry is still trying to figure that out. And uh, the reality of it, of it today is, you know, when you want to do an upgrade of the firmware to your building control system, a human being has to go into the building, right? Mm -hmm. And then spend about a day and reflash the firmware. And this takes quite a bit of time uh, and then make sure that all of the things are, are done correctly. So this is, um, you know, this is an expensive endeavor, right? So, it, you know, firmware upgrades are not free to the operator. It takes quite a bit of time and, and money to, to do this. So that's something that certainly I think needs to improve and it is improving. So in the future, we should be able to, you know, quickly and easily patch vulnerabilities and, and you know, fix bugs inside building control systems. And, you know, as they become connected to the internet, just like everything else, 
they're going to have to catch up in the, the firmware update cycle, just like everything else. Um, and I expect to see that cycle shorten between, you know, five years down to a year, down to three months. Uh, and mm -hmm. I think that's going to happen in the next, you know, five years. Hmm. Based on things you're hearing from the vendors or what? You know, based on what I'm seeing on the ground and based on the need for this, because mm -hmm. not a lot of people are looking into the firmware building control systems. And I think that's why... I, I think that's the primary reason why you don't see a, a a avalanche of vulnerability disclosures coming down to building control systems. Yeah, right. Oh, so sure. If, yeah, it's not because they're secure. <laughs> oh, absolutely not. And it's because these things are hard to get come by. You know, you need some kind of very specialized voodoo magic knowledge to like just figure out the terminology of you know what connects to what, right, and how these things all work. But you know, if you're if your typical smart security researcher spent a week. Uh, looking at this sort of thing, they'll get it, right? And I think if a fraction of the security community uh, sort of redirected their attention to building control systems, you're going to see a whole lot of vulnerability disclosures coming down the pipe. And yeah. that necessarily is going to force people to, you know, fix these things. And, uh, you know, it, right now, the way we fix it, again, a human being goes out there, spends day, days uh, fixing the problem, and that's just not going to be sufficient going forward. <laughs> What do we know? Because one of the things that obviously tends to make these issues um, have more prominence and more um, sense of urgency around them is is threats and attacks. What do we know about the interest of either cyber criminals, APT groups, what have you, in uh, these types of systems? You know, so I'll, I'll give you two answers. The, the first thing is. I'm not going to say, I'm not going to talk about exactly what we know about exact instances. Oh, come on. <laughs> We're all friends here. Let's talk about what we don't know, right? Because we don't have any kind of security technology that lives inside these controllers, uh, we don't know if there's a, a persistent implant that's in our building, mm -hmm. control, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, the thing appears to work, you know, it, it's, all the lights are flashing the, the right way. Uh, but who knows, you know, is there a rootkit, you know, that can be sort of invoked remotely at down the road? Uh, we don't have the ability to you know, answer that to any confidence right now. So uh, just because the, the building control system hasn't shut down in the last five years doesn't mean somebody hasn't already gotten gotten into the system. Right. And, and has a persistent you know, implant there. And a, another thing about this to cyber criminals and nation states, chances are unless they want to go like the nuclear option. You know, you, you want to have very specific targeted implants in buildings that you care about. So, you know, they might actually have a human being go in there and covertly, you know, physically install some kind of an implant on the, the physical building control network. Uh, and we, we just have no idea whether, you know, the implant is there or not. You know, we've seen in the news ransomware accidentally hitting computers that control HMIs for industrial control systems and hospitals. But if, if you look at those instances, that's just the, the attackers getting lazy and messing up and hitting a computer that they probably didn't mean to hit, right? Because, you know, they're going after Windows machines and one of those Windows machines just so happened to control something inside a, a hospital. Now, think about this. What, what would happen if... And a, a cyber criminal intentionally created ransomware, right? Not for that Windows computer, but for the actual embedded controller that controls the building or, you know, your car or the industrial control system, the, the PLC that controls, you know, the robots that make the cars and, and all this other stuff, right? It, it becomes a completely different equation. You know, you might not pay 
uh, you know, like five hundred dollars in bitcoins to unlock your 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 laptop data, right? But you know, what would you say? You know, would you pay a, a ten thousand dollars to unlock the the building control system that controls your lab or your factory? Mm-hmm. And I think that's mm-hmm. something that one that is much easier to do uh, than yeah. than writing ransomware for your modern Windows or Mac laptop or a piece or a computer. Uh, and two, uh, the pay rate I think you'll get out of that it will be much higher, right? So it's it's kind of astounding that it hasn't happened. You know, as as you talk about it, you're like, yeah, why? Well, I mean, why hasn't that happened? And what I wonder is, has it not happened because, in some ways, um, often it's the independent security researchers who are are the first to. Um, you know, note the vulnerabilities. Um, and then it's the sort of cyber criminals who sort of pick up on that and say, oh, yeah, well, maybe we should be paying attention to these platforms as well. I think of like point of sale systems, right, where you had, you know, security researchers warning about, you know, POS vulnerabilities, you know, well before you had widespread POS compromises. And and is is that it? Just that the their attention isn't there, maybe because the security community's attention isn't there. You know, so that's a that's a really great question. You know, you know, it certainly isn't difficult to do. You know, I'm certainly not the first person to have talked about this or realized that. You know, creating something that locks up the you know a building control system remotely can be done. There are two questions. One, you know, why don't we see your average one in the mill cyber criminals doing this and making a ton of money off of it? Uh, and two, you know, has somebody done this, but, you know, but their goal isn't to just extort some Bitcoins out of you, but, you know, have. Yeah, right. It's a longer goals. play. So the first one, uh, you know, we don't actually know if people have been successfully doing this because the nature of ransomware, right, if you're doing this targeted attack, right, the last thing you're going to do is, you know, the, the victim will probably not want to disclose this, right? So I don't. Uh, so point. I think it might it might happen. Uh, we certainly don't know about it. But uh, number two, what is the nation state level version of this ransomware? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you can use our imagination and think about that. And uh, you know, does that not happen? It's difficult to think that you know nobody has tried to put a persistent implant in in these controllers. I mean, I I, I think it's happened. We just don't have any public knowledge of of instances like that, or we don't have many public knowledge of public instances of things like that. Yeah. Okay. Final question, which is, you know, you talked about the problems that are out there already um, in legacy building automation system, hardware and software, PLCs and actuators, and then the management software that runs them. And then as you're talking, obviously, we're entering this great new world of the Internet of Things and companies that make building automation software and companies that own buildings are looking to add and instrument all kinds of different building functions that maybe haven't been so far. Right. So it's like you're putting 10 new stories on top of the building with the bad foundation. (laughs) Is there, from what you can see, a a new generation of building automation software coming along that is going to do a better job of engineering security into the platform? Or are all these connected smart building features more or less going to be tacked on to the existing legacy building automation system infrastructure? I think the short answer is uh, both, right? In reality, that both are going to happen. And what I'll say is, I spend the vast majority of my day not, you know, breaking into these or finding vulnerabilities in, in these devices, but working with the vendors that create the firmware that go into the controllers and figuring out 
ways of integrating our security technology into that firmware. You know, and without going into any details, I think you know if you look out for in, in the next year, two years, you're going to see a lot of really exciting security features being built into some of the most common uh, you know building control systems. Uh, with technology that comes out of uh, Red Balloon. Uh, hmm. And I see this as a, um, you know, we're, we're hitting a, a very interesting inflection point here. You know, we're at a point where the customers, uh, ultimate customers uh, understand and are becoming aware of the, the cybersecurity problems of the system. The manufacturers of these things are certainly recognizing that their customers are seeing that and they're standing up and saying, hey, what do we do about security? And then Red Balloon is around and we have a technology that, I've been working on as a, I worked on for my PhD dissertation for seven years and now has been commercialized for, for four years uh, that is available and it's commercially mature that can actually go into these products. So, you know, we're in a confluence of uh, all, three of the, all three of these things where, yeah, I think in the next year or two, you're going to see a lot of uh, very exciting development inside uh, around building automation security and industrial control security at the firmware level. Uh, and uh, some of that will be, uh, you know, because of Replin security technology. Ong, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. Thanks for having me. Ong Sui is the founder and CEO of the security firm Red Balloon.